After the Buddha's awakening to the truth, he offered the teachings of his understanding in the first discourse that he gave, which was essentially about the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths you've probably all heard about, but in brief, the first Noble Truth is that there's the truth of suffering. The second Noble Truth is that this suffering is uh, caused by clinging, craving, attachment. Third Noble Truth is that there is an end to this dukkha. And the fourth Noble Truth is there's a path of practice to be developed by each one of us to realize this end of dukkha or this end of all forms of suffering. And that fourth Noble Truth is essentially three trainings. And the first training is a training in sila or purification of speech and conduct so that we're not uh, acting out these uh, dysfunctional strategies we have in life for getting what we want. You know, attachment, aversion, fear, jealousy, blame, things like that. And if we practice sila, which is essentially keeping the precepts, uh, then we're careful and less likely to act unmindfully when we speak and when we act and therefore not cause that kind of harm to ourselves and others. But even if we are able to be careful in speaking and acting, we still might be tormented in our mind with what we'd like to say and like to do. <laughs> so we have these obsessive uh, torments in the mind, not just the transgressive torments that we act out, but these obsessive torments in the mind, which the Buddha offered a second training for, which is mindfulness. And with the continuity of mindfulness, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience, we develop what's called samadhi, or a seclusion of mind. Samadhi is seclusion of mind. And it means the mind secluded from these obsessive torments of mind. And you know what your <laughs> favorite torments of mind are. You know, it's what you've been experiencing today. Judgment and blame and fear and depression and despair and hopelessness and attachment and aversion and, you know, and... Okay, so how is it that mindfulness does that? Well, if we're able to recognize each moment as it arises, we see that and we aren't kind of confused by it or not misled by it. We see this is, this is the way it is. But if we do have a reaction of aversion, attachment, confusion, or delusion, then in the next moment we would see that. And rather than obsessing compulsively, obsessively, we would be taking that mental state, that obsessive mental state, as the next object to be known the next moment. So we're not obsessed by it, we're able to be with rather than be entangled in these obsessive states of mind. So this purifies our mind momentarily and with continuity of mindfulness, with some enduring period of time where we are, where the mind is free of these obsessive torments. And that gives us the experience of living with some uh, calmness, some tranquility, some uh, stress management skill, if you will, and able to chill uh, in the face of you know, challenging situations. But, you know, we're not always able to do that. And sometimes, you know, we just get our buttons pushed quickly, uh, unexpectedly, and we're ready to react. And so the Buddha offered a third training, which is the training in the development of wisdom, or panya. And this training is the development of understanding, which purifies, purifies our understanding. And it is, it is essentially the practice of vipassana which is what we're doing here also. So 
we've been doing all three trainings here with everything we do here, being mindful, being aware of, careful in speaking and acting, and also developing insight. So what I want to speak about tonight is this fourth noble truth, the third training of the development of wisdom. Now this wisdom, you know, the Eightfold Path has eight factors. The wisdom training has two factors, right view and right thought. Right view is really having some clear, accurate, skillful understanding of the way things are. And right thought is thinking about right view and acting on right, you know, our experience with skillful thinking. So I'm going to speak about both of these tonight. When I say right view, and right thought. And we should understand that the Buddha's um, kind of baseline interest was, is this suffering or is this not suffering? Does this lead to suffering or does it lead to the end of suffering? So when he uses the word right view, right thought, he's talking about views that lead to suffering or the end of suffering. Right views would be views and understandings that lead towards the end of suffering. Wrong views would be those views and beliefs, assumptions, that lead to suffering. Right thought also is thinking in such a way as to lead away from suffering. Wrong thought would lead to more suffering. So it's not some metaphysical right and wrong so much as it's a very personally experienced skillful or unskillful way of understanding and way of thinking. And as Sayadaw Tejaniya acknowledges about right view of the Four Noble Truths, he said, this, these skillful understandings are to inspire and motivate us to try to capture and build upon the elusive thread of wisdom that has drawn us to meditation practice in the first place. And bringing both awareness and wisdom to each moment in a continuous and a sustained way will allow nature to emerge, take over, with the only effort required being a genuine interest in seeing what meditation can uncover and bring into our lives. So right view is, plays an important part in how we practice, our understanding of why we practice, how we practice, and what the goal of practice is. You know, when we have an opportunity to hear or see uh, a newsworthy event, and it could be on TV, it could be online somewhere, and you see a clip, you see a 30-second clip of what happened. And you see it, you hear it, you have your own experience of it through that medium, so you know what happened. You know what you saw, you know what you heard. But after the clip is over, then the news commentators and spin commentators, they come on and they talk about how you should understand what you just saw. And after 30 minutes of them talking about how you should understand it, you don't know what you saw. You saw it, you heard it, but you don't know how to understand it. Because we only have our own biases to evaluate all the commentators. And we achieved or we arrived at our own bias and our own beliefs and our own assumptions through the conditioning of our parents and other caregivers, our educational system, our government, our peers, our own experiences. And we are limited in our beliefs by what we have received from others and what we've kind of figured out for ourselves, And yet, as we know, and as we can see, we suffer. We still suffer. 
We suffer with fear. We suffer with anxiety. We suffer with depression. We suffer with all, all kinds of, um, well, unskillful strategies for dealing with the facts of life. The Buddha offers us another way of understanding life and life experiences called right view. It's a different way of see a different lens through which to understand our experience. So with all of the conditioning of our peers and parents and educational system and otherwise, the deeper layers of our conditioning, some of the beliefs and assumptions that our whole structure of understanding rests on are pretty inaccessible. We don't see them. We just have, we just have an opinion. Something happens, boom, we have an opinion. Where it comes from and all the foundations of unskillful views, wrong views, that it rests upon, we don't have access to. We don't see them. We don't even know what they are, what our beliefs and assumptions are. And so how we think about these experiences is pretty opaque. I mean, we see the surface of our thoughts, but we don't see the roots of our thoughts. Now, as Dan Goldman uh, acknowledges in his book, The Varieties of Meditative Experiences, he says, normal consciousness is often highly unhealthy with a general heaviness and unwieldiness of mental processes where the force of habit predominates and changes and adaptations are undertaken slowly and unwillingly and to the smallest possible degree. Thought is rigid and inclined to dogma, and it often takes a long time to learn from your own experience or advice. Affections and aversions are fixed and biased, and in general, the character proves more or less inaccessible. Hard to have hope with that view of life. But the Buddha offers an alternative way of understanding life experiences, which has the, with which if practiced, offers a uh, collateral benefit of changing our character. So when the Buddha spoke, he spoke and pointed to these truths, these four noble truths, and this is called right view. So he spoke about right view. Others inquired of him and Sariputta, in this case, uh, who was the second to the Buddha in wisdom, how, since right view is so important, how do we get right view in our own minds? How do we get it for ourselves? And he said there are two elements to right view. The first is you need to hear it from somebody else first. That might be a challenge. We like to, you know, we're educated and independent and autonomous and confident. And we like to think that we can solve our own problems. And yet the Buddha said, or Sariputta acknowledged, you know, this one is really hard to figure out. So it'd be better if you heard it from someone else first. Or actually, it's actually necessary to hear it from someone else first. And with that, the second element is we need to develop wise attention. So that when we hear right view, it is as if we get a map. We get a picture of the map of how to understand experience leading to the end of suffering or leading to less suffering or the end of suffering. But just having the map is not taking the journey, as you know. And so we actually have to take the journey of developing our mind to be able to see or to be able to understand our experience through the lens of right view. Now, we should be careful because when we hear some of the Buddhist teachings, and I know this was happened for me, when I first did my first retreat, I didn't, I didn't know anything about Buddhism or religion or spirituality or meditation. I didn't, <laughs> that was the furthest thing from my interest at the time. But when I heard the Dharma talks about mindfulness, vulnerable truths, uh, eightfold path, three characteristics, things like things like that, it was like, I get it. That 
That's it. That's just, somebody is finally saying what I've always known to be true, and I'd never heard it before. So it was really easy for me to believe. I didn't have any, I didn't have any doubt or question or challenge what I heard of the Buddha's teachings. But that level of confidence, that level of faith, that level of trust, that level of belief or alignment is not sufficient to change the deep conditioning of our minds, our hearts. And so what often happens is we try to impose, we try to lay this understanding on top of our experience and see our experience through that lens. This is called spiritual bypassing, (laughs) where we haven't really done the work from the inside out. We're just kind of, you know, holding up kind of a template that we're looking at the world through and saying, oh yeah, I see it that way too. But that's not going to really uncondition or decondition the training that we've received from womb to womb to the present moment. <clears throat> Sayadaw Tejaniya's teacher was Shweyu Min Sayadaw, and he said, we meditate in order to develop right view. This cannot be done by the ego. Meditation must proceed naturally by watching every experience just as it is. This is the way to develop right view. We can hear right view, but it isn't developed in our own heart. Okay. So, when we come to the teachings of the Buddha, we hear the Dharma. A few of you have asked in groups in, in, in the hall, what is the Dharma anyway? And the Buddha understood, through his own experience, the way things are, the way things have come to be. It wasn't that he invented a nice theory about how things are. He observed it. And he articulated it in the Four Noble Truths. Well, it's like Newton. Wasn't it Newton that sat under the tree and the apple fell? And reflecting on that carefully, he was able to articulate the law of gravity. He didn't invent the law of gravity, but through the care and precision of his observation and the sophisticated subtlety of his understanding, he was able to articulate a natural law, the law of gravity. Huh. That's what the Buddha did. The Buddha watched, observed the mind over, well, lifetimes as a bodhisattva, but for years of practice in this lifetime when he became a Buddha, he observed the mind and how the mind operated, how it worked. And with his awakening, he was then able to articulate the natural laws governing the unfolding of the mind. He didn't invent. He didn't kind of make it up. He didn't theorize, oh, this is the way it could be, should be, wouldn't this be helpful? but it's from his observation and the subtlety and sophistication of his understanding that he was able to articulate the truth. So when we hear the Buddha's teaching, we hear the teachings that point to the natural laws governing the unfolding of our mind, our heart. So we could say the Buddha's teachings are the Dharma. They point to the Dharma, which is the way things are. And for us, in any moment, what we experience is the way things are for us in that moment. So every experience is also called a Dharma. So that's what we're talking about. When we practice the Dharma, as we are here, we're practicing the Buddhist teaching, we're practicing understanding the way things are for us with, with our personal experience. So we could say that in some ways we are scientists of this this thing, this experience called being human. Because we're observing with care and precision to understand the laws of nature that are guiding the unfolding of this thing called this human life. And Western scientists, as you know, have, have studied the laws of nature 
And they have articulated the biological laws that we are heir to. Being a biological being, we are all subject to all the biological laws that affect all living things. All living things are born, live, die. It's not like it's an option as a human being to, to, to be born, live, not die, or to be not born but live and die. It's, it's just not an option. We are heir to the biological laws. And to the extent that we understand the laws of biology and live in alignment with them, we suffer less. So too with the physical laws of nature, the physical laws like the law of gravity. We are subject to the natural laws of gravity. You don't have to believe it. You'll suffer <laughs> if, if you don't, you know, or if you don't live in alignment with it, you'll suffer. But you can, you can argue with it all you want. But the suffering is kind of a powerful support for belief. And so too with practice. As we practice, as we hear these teachings and practice, we see our suffering. And what it reveals to us is that we don't yet understand the laws of nature governing the unfolding of the mind. Or we're struggling with them not understanding them well enough to live in alignment with them. So what is it that the Buddha articulated as the natural laws governing the unfolding of the mind? Well, one of them is, he says, you know, when we're born, our, the mind is not a, cl a clear slate. It's not an empty plate. It already has a highly developed, uh, what do you call operating system, if you will, and we, we, we come into this world with these mental legacies. And some of the mental legacies are skillful and wholesome. Like, you might, you might reflect on your own way of being in the world. And you can recognize that, oh, you have these, this, this level of patience. Kind of a, a, a baseline level of patience, kindness, generosity, understanding, energy. Uh, simplicity, you know, and some of us have more patience and, you know, more or less of all of these. We all have some degree, uh, but there's, there's a variety amongst us. But some of them are also unskillful. You know, the dysfunctional strategies of blame, aversion, fear, desire, greed, jealousy, uh, discrimination, and we all have some baseline tendency to resort to those strategies. And you don't, you don't have to wait until you're you know, a teenager or an adult to recognize what someone's baseline wholesome, skillful and unskillful tendencies are. Even when a, a young child is soon out of the womb, it doesn't take long before they're distinguished from their siblings or they begin to have their own unique, they begin to display their own unique matrix of, well, mental legacies. Oh. So it can be helpful for, for all of us to, to kind of uh, recognize our baseline mental legacies, the skillful ones and the unskillful ones. And if you haven't done that, or if you don't know what yours are, ask the person you live with, they know. Okay, so you know the other an another uh, mental uh, law, a law of nature governing the unfolding of the mind is a basic personality type. You know we often hear the basic personality types is the greed type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. And if you don't know which one you are, you're definitely the third, right? <laughs> okay, but but really there's six. You know there's those three, and then there's the wholesome three the wise, the uh, faithful, and the uh, reflective. Oh, huh. So, you know, do you know what you're kind of like, you know, the mind is like a soundboard. We have all these six possibilities, you know, the greed type or the faith type. Faith, as Kamala mentioned the other night, seeks the good. It looks for the good. It looks for the good in ourselves, in others. It moves our heart and mind in that direction. 
Greed, or attachment on the other hand, seeks pleasure. Aversion uh, is very discriminating. Wisdom is very discerning. Restlessness, or the, uh, the deluded type, is restless and doubtful, whereas the reflective type is, has some discernment and understanding. And we, ha- we, ha- we all have these tendencies, but you might notice that you're more of an aversive type than a greed type. It's just good to know. Because they kind of point to the, kind of the, the strength of the baseline character that we'll be working with in this lifetime. And then there's karma. Karma is a, you know, it's a term from the middle, from, you know, India and, and, and Buddhism too, that talks about the um, kind of the ethical uh, laws of nature, pointing to the understanding that if we speak and act and think in a way that is influenced by or rooted in aversion, attachment, and delusion, the resultant will be painful to us. The resultant effect of speaking and acting that way will be unpleasant and painful. If, on the other hand, we speak and act and think in a way that's kind, wise, generous, compassionate, the result will be pleasant. Huh. Now, there's a lot of footnotes to the law of karma that I won't go into or try to defend or justify or explain, but we get a sense of that. It's not, it's not too remote from us. If you're, if you're kind and nice and generous, you, you have more pleasant interactions with people. If you're aversive and greedy and deluded and confused, it's difficult and challenging. It's that simple and yet carried out to its uh, far-reaching consequences. It has significant effect in our life. So as we hear the Buddhist teachings, we come to understand some of these laws of nature governing the unfolding of the mind. These are some right views of the Dharma. Now, when we come to meditation practice, there are also many ways to understand meditation practice. So I want to share some right views of meditation practice that will help us as we practice here and help us to understand how to practice skillfully. The mind is what knows. The mind is what feels. The mind is what thinks. In every moment, the mind knows something. Every moment. Even when asleep, the mind knows what's going on. Even when your mind wanders away, you know, during meditation practice, you're trying to be present and trying to be with the present moment, but we forget, we space out, we get lost, we get entangled. We wander around in a train of thought. And while we're wandering around in that train of thought, we don't know that we're thinking. We don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know how long we've been thinking. We don't know what posture we're in. We don't know what time of day it is. We don't know our name. We don't know our gender. We don't know anything. Well, we don't. We're not aware of it. But the mind does. The mind knows all that stuff all the time. And we can recall that. We can can recall times when we were not aware but we can recall what we were knowing or what the mind was knowing at that time. So in every moment, something is being known. What is being known, we call the object. And it can be sensations in the body. It can be activities of the mind or the heart, feelings, emotions, thoughts. It can be beliefs. It can be assumptions. It can be anything from the environment. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. Mindfulness or awareness involves remembering to recognize this activity of something being known in every moment. Now, whether you practice meditation or not, the mind is knowing something in every moment. The only difference between 
someone who's meditating and someone who isn't is that those who are practicing awareness recognize what their experience is. So we don't have to change our experience, we just have to recognize our experience. So the field of our meditative awareness in this, in this practice for practicing insight or mindfulness and insight is our own body and mind. We're not so interested as Western science has been to study external nature so much as our internal nature. So we're not looking for this uh, kind of metaphysical reality or some way of understanding what's going on here. We're looking for our subjective or at our subjective experience. How do we experience this in here, this mind in this body? The Buddha said, all, there's one short discourse. I think it's even called the short discourse that everyone only experiences six things, six things, sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, and some mental activity. You'd think with only six things to recognize, it shouldn't be that difficult, right? But there's a lot of variety in all of those six. So this makes it difficult. Now, objects to be known can be anything. As I mentioned, and sometimes we struggle with the object. Sometimes we don't like the object. It's painful, or it's scary, or it's fearful, or it causes us to be angry, or to feel judged, or to feel ashamed. And yet, it's just something being known. And so, when it's unpleasant, or when it's something that we don't like, then we push it away, we struggle with it, we try to deny it, avoid it, minimize it, explain it, rationalize it, blame somebody for it. And this is where we suffer. And so when we approach meditation with our, you know, deeply conditioned understandings or misunderstandings that we've acquired in this life, of course we're going to prefer pleasant and not prefer unpleasant. Whatever, we're, what, whatever we've been taught is good for you, you'll like and you'll want. You won't struggle with it. You want more of it. And whatever you have been taught uh, or conditioned to believe is bad for you, then you push it away. But this is not the Buddha's way. This is not the Dharmic way. The Dharmic way of understanding is to, well, see that in every moment, what has arisen, arisen to be known is mostly outside of your control. It has arisen due to causes and conditions that you don't have any control over or very little control over. So much of what we experience in the body, it comes from just having a body. You know, so much of what occurs in the mind occurs just because there's a mind. And we don't, we don't choose it, we don't invite it, we don't want it, we don't even understand it, and yet we have to put up with it. We have to see it. We have to, well, we have to know it. We have to recognize that the mind knows it. So in some ways, without, it's not possible to, to experience life without objects. Sometimes we want to push away objects as if that's the problem. But if there's no object, there can be no awareness. You can't have an awareness that doesn't know anything. Huh. Okay. So what we're doing here is, is working with the mind. We're working with not the object. We're not trying to make our life be all the pleasant objects that we prefer. That's hopeless. You just can't control conditions to only experience pleasant conditions, right? Not in the body, not in the mind, not in your relationships. It just doesn't happen that way. So if that's what we're looking for in meditation, can you see that it's inevitably going to cause and feel like suffering, struggle? So already we see that, wait a minute, to not struggle, to not uh, be upset with, then we have to adjust our thinking. 
We have to adjust our thinking to, oh, whatever is being known, whatever has arisen due to cause and conditions, and being known, well, is there a way to acknowledge that without our preconditioned beliefs about it? So what we're doing is we're working with the mind. Meditation is the work of the mind. And we're working to cultivate the awareness that can recognize in a balanced way every moment's experience. It's work, isn't it? Because, you know, a lot of what arises to be known in this body, in this mind, in this environment, we don't prefer. We'd rather not, we'd rather not have to experience that. And yet, that's the work. That, that, that's the work that we're, that we're dealing with. Can I recognize, can I be at ease with whatever has arisen? So these are some of the right views about meditation practice that, or, or mindfulness in the development of insight that we want to um, kind of remember or kind of let guide the way we approach practice. So these right views that I've shared are the first factor of the wisdom training in the Eightfold Path. The second factor of the wisdom training of the Eightfold Path is right thought. Now, right thought is, if you understand right view, then we try to think about our experience skillfully with that right understanding with that skillful understanding <clears throat> so right thought skillful thoughts are generally uh, the intention that we have in our mind the motivations in our mind the attitudes in our mind the attitudes that we practice with the attitudes that we have towards our experience the attitudes we have towards meditation and they occur in a couple of places first they occur in relation to every experience. So when an unpleasant experience arises, what's the attitude in mind, or what is the thought in mind about an unpleasant experience? I don't like it, I wanna get rid of it, this is wrong, this is bad, right? That's not skillful thinking. That, that is definitely gonna cause a sense of struggle and, and suffering. So how can, we, how can we see this unpleasant experience more skillfully? If we understand that it has arisen due to causes and conditions that are mostly out of our control, it is natural. It is, it's not a mistake. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. Apples don't fall out of the trees as a mistake. They fall because they follow the laws of nature. Well, what arises in the mind is following the laws of nature. Some people will say, huh, it's just nature. And that can be a powerful support for relaxing your judgment or your aversion towards unpleasant experience. It's nature. So if, we, if, we, if something arises and we feel angry, well, we see that, oh, this is an unpleasant experience. I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. And this is anger irritation, impatience, frustration, whatever it is. The frustration, not only is the unpleasantness of the experience uh, nature or uh, conditioned by the laws of nature, but the frustration, the disappointment, the aversion is also conditioned by the laws of nature because that's your training. That's, that's our conditioning. To, to be averse to unpleasant experience. So in relation to the object or the experience, we have these hindrances, these uh, unskillful strategies, ways of judging ourselves and the experience. And with right view, we can begin to understand them as this is just the unfolding of nature. Again, it's not always easy to see that because it feels like, well, that person over there who's doing that, they're the cause of my suffering. Well, 
you should know by now, you're all old enough to know by now, that you cannot control other people. Right? Not very skillfully, not very easily. You can negotiate, <laughs> you, you can express your, your wishes, you know, how it impacts you, but it's really, hard, it's really hard to control our own mind and behavior, let alone someone else's. Okay, so in the Buddhist teaching of right thought, skillful attitudes of mind, there are three broad areas. And the first of them is goodwill, thoughts of goodwill. And this is really loving kindness. Thoughts and feelings and an attitude of loving kindness. And for us in practice, it is really embedded in how we practice when we have an open, interested, allowing, uh, acknowledging attitude of mind towards our experience. If we have a very discriminating attitude of mind of like, I don't want to experience that, that's unpleasant, and I'm not going to go there, and I don't, I don't want to see that, and you know, we can see that that's not a very open, allowing, receptive, acknowledging, welcoming attitude of mind. It's just the opposite of loving-kindness. So in this practice of awareness, we can practice loving-kindness as, as you learned uh, the other afternoon. We can do a very formal loving-kindness and we can develop loving-kindness in our heart towards others, ourselves. Skillful, really skillful, useful, beneficial uh, tool. But we can also have those same attitudes of mind in how we approach our practice, meaning how we relate to every experience we have. We can have an open, allowing, interested, accepting, acknowledging, patient attitude of mind towards present moment experience. So this is the way that the attitude of mind or the, the right thought influences not only our relationship to our experience, but how we're practicing. So you'll hear me and others saying, check your attitude of mind. Often in your practice, check your attitude of mind. Are you open, allowing, interested, willing, patient, responsive, acknowledging? Or are you kind of picking and choosing and discriminating and pushing and trying to trying to get, trying to have, trying to, you know, judging and evaluating. So you can see, just from my demonstrative <laughs> gestures, you know, the difference between skillful, less suffering attitude of mind and less skillful, more suffering attitude of mind. The second uh, broad area of skillful thought uh, or right attitude is renunciation, simplicity, you might say. Letting go, the ability to let go. And this is really where we learn to relax, we learn to let go of expectation, let go of anticipations, uh, not looking to indulge in our experience. We're willing to let things be as they are, simply to just be as they are without demanding that they satisfy us or meet our expectations or fulfill us or uh, somehow entertain us. We just let them be. We don't get entangled with them. So living simply or being, uh, having a, an attitude of letting things be or letting things, uh, or, or being simply with the way things are is a skillful attitude of mind. We're not trying to control it. We're not trying to fix it. We're not trying to uh, make it be something that we want rather than the way it is. And so when we're able to do that, we have, you know, we don't need to embellish our experience. We don't get disappointed in our experience. We just have a, a really let things be as they are attitude of mind. Not always easy. You know, this is a training. But you can see that Without that kind of thinking or intention or motivation or attitude of mind, you're definitely setting yourself up for a struggle. Demanding, expecting, embellishing, 
So the second area is simplicity, letting go, renunciation, letting things be as they are, rather than as you would want or as you don't want. And the third area of uh, right thought, skillful intentions, is harmless compassion. To do no harm to yourself or to others. And this is where we really um, practice uh, just accepting things as they are without being judgmental, seeing them as just nature, not all about me or a judgment of me or an expression of me, uh, exercising some restraint where we are willing to accept and acknowledge this is the way it is rather than you know, trying to make it, you know, kind of harshly kind of make it be what we want. Where we're, we're willing to just be comfortable and at ease with our body, with our mind, with our practice, rather than laying some heavy demand on ourselves to perform, to produce. Somebody used the word uh, today in uh, talking about practice. Would this be a more productive way of practice? And I said, you know, we're not, we're not really production-minded here. <laughs> you know, so to get that to have that attitude of mind, is this going to be more productive? You can see what that does. It's like, how do I capitalize on this and you know, get get something of it, rather than how can I just be interested in the way things are and understand this is the way it is. So, when we're at ease, we're not kind of agitating for things to be different. When we're comfortable, when we're able to be just alert without we're vigilant without being hypervigilant. You know, vigilant is just being present and interested. Hypervigilant has got an agenda, just a little bit severe. So it's a really delicate balance, really, to have a skillful, right attitude in practice and towards each moment's experience. And yet, that's the work. Because you'll see, as we as you become more familiar with your attitudes of mind, your relationship to each experience, and your relationship to how you're practicing, that you'll begin to see when you get into controlling mode, uh, judgmental mode, embellishing mode, uh, or and when you're and on the contrary, when you're able to just relax, be interested, be willing, allowing, open, receptive. Huge difference in practice. Same experience, huge difference in how you relate to it and how you relate to your practice. If you understand that, oh, this is right view, and this is right attitude. Now, I, I, you know, after speaking about attitude in years ago, as I started speaking about right attitude, which Saito-Tejaniya uses a lot, people would ask me, well, how do you, what are you talking about? What is this right attitude you're talking about? And how do I know what my attitude of mind is? So I came up with a little it's kind of a modern uh, way of determining your attitude of mind. I know you don't have them because you passed in your, most of you passed in your phone, so you don't have your cameras. But when you get your phone back, if you want to know what your attitude of mind is at any time, take a selfie, make it in an emoji. What is it saying? Think about it. Your attitude of mind is written on your face. Whether you're striving, whether you're judgmental, whether you're spaced out, whether you're hopeful, whether you're expectant, whether you're frustrated, whether you're disappointed, it's all right here. So just, just take a selfie, make it an emoji, and you'll see what your attitude of mind is. Well, you don't need your phone to do that. You can do that anytime you want to check your attitude of mind. Just take a look. Just what is your posture? What is your facial posture saying about your internal relationship to the present moment. Kind of revealing, actually. <laughs> Nevertheless, it works. Right attitude, Saito Tejaniya says, allows you to accept, acknowledge, and observe whatever's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and remain relaxed and alert. That's right attitude. Whatever's happening, you can... Recognize it, observe it, be with it, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. 
and to ask yourself, what is my attitude of mind? Or what attitude of mind is present? Will reveal to you the nature of the mind, which is to know. It is the mind that's doing this knowing. We forget that. I mean, we live, we've lived with it for so long. We've taken it for granted. We don't even see it. We don't recognize it anymore. But once you ask, or as you ask, as you get familiar with asking, what's the attitude of mind that's present? It'll turn your attention to recognize that there is knowing, that there is awareness. So, with the right views that we've heard, and with the right attitude of mind in our practice, or towards our practice, then we're willing to observe and be interested in whatever arises. And this leads to knowledge. I was mentioning to one of the groups today, if you didn't ever live, didn't, had never seen uh, a New England deer, and you, you saw one and you wanted to understand or know something about a deer and the behavior of a deer and the kind of the lifestyle of a deer or the nature of a deer, you could go to your Google and Wikipedia and look it up and see what others have discovered. But if you just observe that deer, you just observe it. You just watch how it steps, what it eats, when it lifts its head, how it moves its ear, how it flicks its tail, how it cares for its young, how it responds and reacts to movements and sounds. If you just watched for an hour or two, you would know more about that deer than almost anything you can read. You'd know it from your direct observation. Not because you're trying to figure it out, you're not trying to explain it, you're not trying to justify it, rationalize it, you don't have any doubts about it, you just see, oh, th this is the way it is. Our mind and our body is just like that. It just is the way it is. So when we can have that kind of just pure interest to know how is it, then we approach our body and mind. Now we have to put aside our conditioned beliefs, hopes, expectations, fears, frustrations, disappointment, ambitions. <sighs> Got to put all that aside in order to just be with things as they are, without any demand. Let them simply be the way they are and to receive them, to observe them. And then we'll begin to understand, oh, this is the way it is. You know, when a, when a difficult state of mind arises, you know, due to its own conditioning, you know, whether it's sadness or fear or anxiety, as we, as we all feel at different times. Being anxious is very different than thinking about what's causing your anxiety. And both of those are very different than being aware that anxiety has arisen in the mind. And yet, Anxiety is present in all three situations. But in the first situation, we're identified with it, owning it, and have a judgment about it. I'm anxious. In the second, we're thinking about it unskillfully. We're thinking about it as a way of trying to figure it out and trying to get rid of it or blaming somebody for it or blaming, you know, judging ourselves for feeling anxious. And again, we're suffering. But when we're able to recognize, oh, anxiety has arisen in the mind, then we can observe it, we can feel it, without suffering by seeing, oh, this is the nature of anxiety. This is what it feels, this is what anxiety feels like. These are the kind of thoughts that anxiety throws up in my face. These are the kinds of, this is how it feels to practice awareness with anxiety present. So when we have that willingness to just be simply with the way things are, we're not identified with it. We don't struggle with it. We're not trying to get rid of it. We're willing to let it be there, but we're not entangled in it. We're actually aware of it. And it's a huge difference, subjectively feeling, of course, huge difference in being anxious and being aware of anxiety. But in both cases, they're both anxiety is present. When we're identified with it, we suffer. When we're aware of it, we're free. This kind of understanding grows because you've heard right view. 
you've heard of the nature of the mind, the nature of these uh, experiences being conditioned. You've thought about it. You've observed it. You've understood for yourself. Now when you, you know, with, with that much information, now when you experience any of these difficult or pleasant states of mind, you can check and see, am I identified with it? Am I suffering with it? Or is there a way of being aware of it? Because with that, we begin to see, oh, we can disentangle our sense of self from suffering. Those unpleasant states of mind, physical experiences, that are uh, just not uh, peaceful, not free, not... Uh, liberated yet. This is called seeing the world through Dharma eyes. When we understand the Dharma, when we understand the nature, when we understand the truth, when we're able to see in this way, when we're able to understand in this way, we see the world through the eyes of the Dharma, not through the eyes of our conditioning. Mark Epstein, a colleague of ours who, um, psychotherapist or psychiatrist, I think, in New York, has written about uh, Dharma practice. And he confirms the Buddha's um, understanding. The Buddha said, those who are wise, those who suffer less, have asked a lot of questions. Not of others so much as of themselves. How is it? that I suffer. They've observed their own experience to understand how they suffer. So Mark wrote, has written, as the Buddhist view has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change your view. If we try instead to just change our emotional reaction to something, we may have some short-term success, but we still remain attached, identified, entangled in the attachment and the aversion to the very feelings we're trying to get rid of. Well, what does that mean in English? It means, you know, when we have a, a, a reaction of, you know, anger, impatience, judgment, we can you know, we can be aware of it. Or if it's really overwhelming, well then, you know, loving kindness is the antidote to aversion. So you can practice loving kindness. And if you're skillful at that, you can subdue the most inflamed of the aversion. But still, you know, the source of that inflammation of aversion is still there. We kind of got some momentary, temporary relief. That's good. It's essential, actually, to know how to do that. But the misunderstandings that we have about ourself being the one who suffers are still embedded in the mind. And it's through practicing, as I've just talked about, being able to uh, open to, being aware of, being, having an attitude of simplicity, loving kindness, being willing, being open. Then we begin to understand what it is that's causing us to suffer. Okay, what wrong understandings is causing us to suffer? And here's where we get to insight. Because the three insights, three Vipassana insights that come to our relief and rescue, if you will, is to see, is to understand, it's not to see, but it's to understand this that I'm experiencing is really unsatisfactory for me personally. It's unsatisfactory. I don't mean to, to be dissatisfied with it. I mean to be aware that this is the experience of unsatisfactoriness. And it's not personal to you. This experience is unsatisfactory. This is the insight into dukkha. We also see that this experience has arisen due to causes and conditions outside of my control. I cannot... I cannot control other people, I can't control the environment, I can't control, can't control my own mind, I can train it, uh, but 
okay, when we see that, we, we're not so entangled in it. We see this is the nature of this kind of experience. This is the nature of the body. This is the nature of the mind. This is the nature of this uh, emotional state, if you will. And when we see that, when we understand that, it's not just seeing it, but it's really the understanding of that, who is it that suffers? Not me. There's no, there's no one here that is entangled in that. We see this is the nature. This is the way it is. And we stop struggling with that. This is the uh, anatta characteristic, seeing the not-self characteristic, if you will. And the third insight is to see that, and you'll, you, this one is easy to confirm, when you're really willing and able to just open and receive the present moment, as unpleasant as it is, and you're not, you're not kind of winching and whining and complaining and resistant, if you're just willingly open to receive, this is the way it is, it's unpleasant, this is its nature, something becomes available to you that is not accessible through any other means. And that is the realization that that state of mind or that experience doesn't last very long. You don't have to get rid of it. It doesn't last. So when you, when you are really willing to just open and feel whatever's happening, as unpleasant as it might be, as much as you don't like it, but if you have no resistance to that, this understanding that it is ephemeral, it's evanescent, it's impermanent, it doesn't last, you don't have to get rid of it. It will go by itself. That is wisdom. That's liberating wisdom. That's what liberates the sense of you from suffering. That's insight. That's what we're practicing here. To gain these, this knowledge to gain this understanding through our own experience. You can hear it from me, you can read it in a book, you can know about it, but you have to do it. You have to do it for yourself. Because when you actually experience it for yourself, then you know. Nobody can talk you out of it. Because you've tasted it yourself. And the taste of that understanding is relief. Release, freedom, peace of mind, if you will. That's why we keep practicing. That's why we keep coming. If, after you've done one retreat, you'll always remember there's something available here that you can't get elsewhere. It's that feeling of relief, that feeling of the taste of release, that taste of freedom. Bit by bit, this is what we get when we practice. This is what we understand as we practice insight. Nobody said it was going to be easy, and I have, and I have confirmed that. It's not going to be easy. <laughs> Nevertheless, it is possible. It is possible. And, as Dan Goldman goes on to acknowledge in his varieties of meditative or spiritual experiences, he says, the ideal type of personality from a Buddhist perspective is without greed for sense desires or anxiety, without resentment, fear of any sort, without dogmatisms or aversions to loss, to disgrace, to blame, to pain, free of lust, free of anger, free of experience of suffering, free of the need for approval, pleasure, praise, or desire for anything beyond what's essential and necessary. There is a prevalence then of impartiality towards others and an equilibrium at all times, with ongoing alertness and calm delight in ordinary and boring experiences. Strong compassion and loving kindness arise spontaneously. Perceptions are quick and accurate, and one maintains composure and skill in all actions with an openness to others being responsive to their needs. Really? <laughs> Ideal type, you know, let's, let's not get too... Let's not get too uh, far from that understanding. But it's you can see the direction. You can see the direction we're going from this intractable character mind 
to this open, responsive understanding. Being aware intelligently will help you to deepen your practice, Sayadaw Tejaniya says, to come to new understanding. Ultimately, it will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness meditation, which is Vipassana insight. The objective of mindfulness meditation is Vipassana insights. So let's sit for a moment. Let these words settle into our heart. Skillful understanding of the right views of the Four Noble Truths are to inspire and motivate us to try to capture and build upon the elusive thread of wisdom that has drawn us to meditation practice in the first place. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. There's 25 minutes for further awareness practice. And then at 9 o'clock we'll have our last uh, sitting of the day together. And I'll offer some reflections on the day's practice. <laughs>